You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to Sparrows and Wildflowers, episode 18. As always, if you've got a suggestion as to someone I can interview, or if you'd like to discuss anything you've heard on the podcast, send me an email to hello at rachelasimpson.com. And for today's episode, I had the privilege of chatting to the very inspiring Josie Parada. Josie shares her powerful journey, beginning with being born to young parents in New Zealand, her traveling over to live in Sydney, going through domestic violence, and how she established the SMS Lighthouse Single Mum Support Service. She speaks about being diagnosed with terminal cancer and her journey of faith in Jesus and what that looked like over the years. Just a warning to listeners that this episode does contain some heavy themes, including suicide themes, so if this brings up any issues for you at all, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And now here's my conversation with Josie Parada. I grew up in New Zealand. I was born in, a, in Wellington, mm-hmm. but at the age of two years old, my mum moved about eight hours away from there. Her parents moved up to the area called Fakatani, mm-hmm. and we went up there. And so, yeah, born in New Zealand, um, my dad, my birth dad, actually left us when I was about two and a half years old. Wow. And my mum came to Sydney actually to, to find him and left me with my grandparents. So wow. I stayed with my grandparents for a few years. Mm. And um, then when she came back, she came back alone. Oh. So I was brought up for a little while with um, a single mum. She was very young though. She had me when she was 17. Okay. And she had my brother before me when she was... 16. Wow. Almost 16. Okay. But in those days, her, her parents, her mum was um, strict Catholic. Uh-huh. And so when she found out she was pregnant, they sent her off to have um, the baby or have the whole pregnancy in a nun's um, monastery. And so nobody at all knew she was pregnant with my brother. Wow. And as soon as she had him, then the nuns took the baby away and then let her out. And so she came out very bitter Mm. and was still going out with my father. And so they literally took off and then fell pregnant straight away. So my brother and I are are close in age, so Mm. only just like one year apart. Mm -hmm. But because he was taken off her, he was adopted out. And so in New Zealand, they had laws that she could, she was continually writing to his adopted parents, but she wasn't allowed to see him or anything like that until he was 18 years old. Mm. I remember that day, um, 18, he was 18, I was 17. What had happened though since is so then my mum repartnered when I was about three and a half. Mm-hmm. And then she had my sister, my next sister when I was five. So from that then marriage, I have three sisters and a brother. So they were brought up with, I was brought up with them. We were all brought up together. Yeah. So brought up the stepdad. And so, yes, yeah, so when, when my brother was 18, we all went down back to Wellington 
which is where we I was actually born, and um, we met him, and that was that was interesting. Yeah, um, I bet. Uh, yeah, for me, I suppose knowing that he was my full-blooded brother, yeah, was kind of exciting. Mm. But I do remember thinking, what must that have been like for him? That we were so close in age and he wasn't brought up with us. Yeah. Whereas I, I suppose he wasn't kept and I was kept. Yeah. And I think that kind of saddened me a bit to think that, you know, I can't imagine what it must have been like for him. But in saying that, I felt like we, our upbringing in my home with my stepdad was probably a place that he once hearing would have heard that he was better off okay. not being with us. Yeah. So, yeah, so my upbringing was very much a upbringing of early years. My, my grandma, my grandmother was a um, Christian. So I, I learned some things about God. And then my auntie and uncle, so my mum's sister, they actually uh, were exec pastors of our local church. And so when they had like youth outings and things like that, they would come and take me and, and I, was, I went to all those youth camps. And, and so looking back now, I, I am really pleased that that happened in my world because I think that's where the grounding started. That's when the first connections to God happened. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome times away because in my home life, Mum was in and out of church. My stepdad was a Mormon. Okay. So pretty different dynamics um, yeah. in Christianity, I suppose, because of his beliefs and then hers. So, But what was also happening was they were um, drinkers. And so I wouldn't say every day, but when they went out, they I remembered sort of maybe about 11 and 12 years old them being out drinking and coming back and then there was fights, violence and things being thrown around the house. And and as I was the eldest of three other siblings, I I suppose I took on a role of protection Mm. where when I knew that it was happening or going to happen, I would gather my brothers and sisters and move them out of the like into one room and um or make sure that though some were asleep and they didn't you know maybe hear but but my youngest brother he had a bed in my parents room because he had growing growing pains Mm. in his legs a lot at night and so the easiest way was mum and dad put him in their room so that in the middle of the night they could get up and, and massage him and stuff so when i knew that there was going to be moments of violence and and fighting i would go in and get him specifically out of the room and 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 bring him to my room but um yeah so i think that was the thing seeing domestic violence in my home i didn't know it was called that obviously growing up yeah. i learned i think that I, I i understood that domestic violence was normal which looking back now was quite warped to mm. think that. I thought that everybody lived in the same kind of setting as ours. Right. And okay. and we were learning how to separate ourselves from that or, or handle the atmosphere and, yeah, just staying out of the way. Or But what would happen is often I'd get called out by my mum to come in and help. With her. the fight. 
Yeah. Okay. So as I would hear my name, I'd go running into the room and I suppose try and get in the middle and and stop what was happening, but mm. it obviously didn't stop. So, um, or maybe it did, maybe it you know, wouldn't have been as worse if I hadn't of. So I felt as though I was a bit of a rescuer, mm. but it was a hard place to be. Yeah. You know, like I was the child. Yeah. <laughs> and so the big thing, as I said, was just my siblings and keeping them, trying to keep them separated. So I took on a lot of the the you know all the the emotions maybe in the home and that but mm. yeah so so that was literally my upbringing and so I kind of had this thing that I was a really high achiever mm-hmm. um, and I absolutely love school because I think as I look back now school was like my refuge school was my separated place away from home. Mm. And so I did my best at school and and um, just loved going to school. Okay. I did. I yeah. did. Yeah. So is someone else to to look after you, I guess? I then. think, yeah, yeah, maybe. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And did you have much thought of the future? Did you know what you wanted to be or what you wanted your life to um, look like? The interesting thing is I had this thinking that – because we were quite a large family, mm. as in there was there was four of us. And I remembered early on, Dad lost his job. So finances were, because there was a local board mills in the area and, and um, for whatever reason that closed down, so it was very hard for him to get work again. And so mum was, I suppose, the breadwinner. Mm. And there was a lot of struggle around finances, Um but in saying that, I felt like we always had everything. Yeah. Um, when we're school discos and dances and stuff like that, mum always did everything she could to get us clo- like good clothes and, and things. And so, so I didn't feel like we were poor, but I feel like I, I remembered there being struggles and finance, financial conversations and, and how tough it was. was. And, and I do remember – one conversation that was being had between mum and dad and and that was that I remembered I remembered my stepdad that's so I, so I grew up calling him dad mm-hmm. I remembered him saying in a conversation to her that if my real father had been sending money to help us then it wouldn't be so tight right and so when I heard that I remember thinking it's my fault that things are tight, oh. you know, because he's got to look after me and he's got to, I suppose, provide for me. And so so I, I made up this thing in my mind that it's because there's so many of us. There was a, there was a, a friend from school. Actually, he was a boyfriend. We were like so around about 14 years old. We um, – got together as boyfriend and girlfriend mm-hmm. and his family dynamics was him and his sister and both parents were working and I remembered looking on at that family dynamic and thinking oh my gosh this is the perfect family right and so I made a promise to myself that I would only ever have a boy and a girl and both parents would be working 
just because it just seemed amazing in their home. It was so peaceful. They joked, they had fun, and they went out and they did things as families. So, yeah, so that was kind of something for what I thought my future would be like. Mm -hmm. the, the, it was that I would work mm. and I would only have two children and I would have amazingly happy marriage, which I think, you know, 12, 13, 14, we all hope that, right? You know, we, we, we hope that our futures do contain the husband, the children and the picket fence. But unfortunately, we don't live in that kind of a world. I suppose as we move on through, you'll, you'll hear what happened to my future. So just dwelling on your childhood a little bit longer, mm -hmm. I, I found it really interesting you talk about there was the Mormon faith and the Christian faith with your mum and your stepdad. Mm. Did that impact you at all, that, that religion was a cause of conflict in your home? Did that impact your faith? I think what actually happened was that I felt a little bit like as much as he was my dad and, and you know, like I was calling him dad, mm. I knew that mum was definitely my mum. Yeah. So my faith, I suppose, was what her faith was. Mm -hmm. And because she was Christian and her sister was in a Pentecostal church, mm -hmm. that was my religion. Okay. And so his faith, his Mormon faith, was like I, I remember thinking because there was so many rules and regulations around you can't have coffee, you can't have this, you can't have that. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't even want that faith. There's too much rules. Was he allowed to drink? No. Okay. <laughs> no, that's what, like so it was a bit of a Sunday church, uh -huh. Monday to Friday in the world. Right. You know, so there was now understanding relationship with Christ mm -hmm. is is a a big package of Monday to Sunday kind of deal, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think we were brought up in a place of church is Sunday and the rest of the week we live how we want sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, not live how you want, but like it's more the drinking and, and the fighting and all that. Obviously, that's not part of Christian life. Yeah, there was just, just attendances at church maybe. I don't know, but no, I, di I didn't really find the religion or the, the conflict between the two religions so hard because I just figured, well, that was his thing and not mine. And so then when you finished school, yep. what did life look like then? In New Zealand to here in Australia, we had like its forms and stuff here, uh, which it actually is there too, but... We don't do kindergarten, mm -hmm. so we start off at like Prima 1, Prima 2, Prima 3 at, in primary school, and so then we break off and we have intermediate, which is actually now I think here year 6 and 7, mm -hmm. and then we go to Form 3, which is in high school. So I went right here. Now I understand it because my kids are, are, have done that, but yeah. I did right up to year 12. I, I finished right through in New Zealand. And mm -hmm. so so what happened was um, I, I, I suppose, was turning 18 and I remember thinking, I've just got to get out of this town. Mm -hmm. we, I was brought up in the town of Fakatani, which is a very small town. Mm -hmm. So everybody kind of knows each other. But mm -hmm. not only that, I was starting to see that friends and kids from school were falling pregnant young or 
um, not finding work, going on unemployment doles and things like that. And I just thought I just need to get out of this town so that I can actually achieve what I want to achieve, and that is a good job. Mm-hmm. That was my first and ultimate goal. And so my my birth father, who I did have a relationship with, okay. and I had a relationship with all like my grandmother, my aunties and uncles who were still in Wellington. Um, and, 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 but the crazy thing is too, is that my stepdad and him, my real dad are actually related. So when we, when there were things down in, in New Zealand, like there is the white people are Pākehā and the, the brown people are, well, not all, but Māldis are the, the majority of the race in New Zealand. So both dads were a Māldi and so we belong to the same tribe. So my stepdad's family and my real dad's family are all from the same tribe in Wellington. Mm-hmm. And so I was um, I was close to my real dad's family down in Wellington and I, I understood our tribe and, and everything like that. So, but I remembered being in the last year of school and thinking, I just want to get out of Fakatani. I just, I just don't want to be, I need to go to a city. And so my real dad lived in Sydney and we, we had been talking and I suppose I looked at it like an escape plan. Mm-hmm. And so I, connected with him and decided to come here to Sydney to stay with him and maybe have a look and see what's here and what I can do. And um, the school friend or boyfriend um, at the time, 14, we got together, but we were still going out at 18. Wow. I said to him, I'm going to Sydney. So, you know, if you want to come, you're more than welcome, but I'm going. And he came. And so we both came and literally three days after landing in Sydney, because I was so focused on employment, I landed a job immediately in a, a commercial agents organization, which is an organization that works with court and serving legal documents and private investigating and things like that. So I started just though as a receptionist, but I also understood that sometimes in positions, in organizations, if you start at the bottom, you can work your way up. And mm-hmm. I could see there was a pathway in this organization. And so I was there. I was there for six years. And I went in as receptionist and left six six years later as a qualified commercial agent serving legal documents and a private investigator. So I felt like I had some qualifications under my belt. And... Life in Sydney was, was I thought, awesome, and mm. I still love Sydney. But I remembered, okay, so coming out of New Zealand, here I was, 18 years old, understood that in Sydney, Australia, you could drink. You're allowed to go to the clubs and pubs at 18 years old. Yeah, in where? New Zealand, it was 20. Oh, really? So I was kind of on this woohoo! Here we go. <laughs> we're in Australia. Yeah. And so, so him and I just, you know, went out and and checked out the nightlife here and had a blast of a time and really just, I suppose, loved Sydney. We stayed with my dad in Coogee for a, for probably only about a year, and he landed a job in a butcher shop and ended up in a butchery apprenticeship. So then the two of us, he was here on the Northern Beaches working at a shop. 
So we decided that we were going to get our own unit and live here on the northern beaches. So that's what we did. We moved over here and this is where life started on the northern beaches of Sydney for, for me and kept at my job, but got to a point six years down the track where I was just, I'd um, felt like there was nowhere further I could go. I was literally just under the CEO now in my qualifications and what I was doing. And I really just felt like I needed a bit of a sea change and thought, well, I'll have a break from law and court and stuff for a while and just try something different. And, and then just did some little, some, some basic jobs and stuff. But then what happened with the guy that I came over with, him and I, we also got to a point where we kind of thought, you know what, we're like best friends, like mm. brother and sisters. Let's might maybe just not be in a relationship together. We were 22 now and let's just be mates. Let's, let's you know, just kind of go our own ways. And him and I are still friends. And he he's now moved out and he's in the mines in, in Darwin, but but we're still still good buddies. Probably about two years later, I went our local clubs in Manly and met a guy down there who was actually a bouncer on the doors. And that actually then he then became the father to my four children. Yeah. And so in this whole time period, like where was your faith sitting? Was it? Mm, okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. So when I left New Zealand, I, I I remembered in the younger years with my auntie and uncle and going to church, being in youth group and stuff and being prayed for. And, and I remembered our church totally believed in the whole speaking in tongues and, you know, the happy, clappy, loud ones. And, <laughs> and so I remembered someone praying for me and, and, I, and, I, and I spoke in tongues. And I think I was about... 13 years old. Okay. And so I I knew that that was real. I knew that that Jesus was real. But see through the dynamics of my life and the whole teenage era, mm. I I was more enticed by what my friends were doing and going out and partying and hanging out. So so my walk with God I suppose came to a halt when I hit my teens, sort of 15 maybe years old, and then sort of stopped going to church and didn't want to go anymore. So when I came to Sydney, of course, as I said, 18 years old, now being allowed to go to clubs and pubs, my walk from God was not a close walk. Mm -hmm. But in saying that, I, I know that he had my back. I felt like he was always with me, but I think I was too cool to go to church at 18, <laughs> 19 years old. It's like, no, nah, not going. So I didn't, I did not go to church at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you met the father of your kids and you mm -hmm. became pregnant. Mm -hmm. So that was always kind of in your dream to, it was. to meet someone and have a couple of kids. Yes. Was that a happy season? At um, it, it, it was. Um, I, I, so I was 24 years old when I fell pregnant with my son but there was some signs earlier on in the piece. We weren't married. There was some signs where we'd probably been going out for about a year and a half, a year at least, and there were some things like he started to make some comments, started to put me down, started to push me around a little bit when we'd go out. But I think what had happened was – memories of my childhood kicked in mm. and 
I thought, oh, this is this is normal. This is kind of normal. And it's I had taught myself seeing see as a child how to disconnect from from that stuff. And so I found myself going to a place of oh this will pass. Now where I sit, I understand the signs of domestic violence. I understand there is a cycle of domestic violence. So when you've got your blow up stage, when there's a blow up and the fight happens and all that kind of stuff, not long after that, there's a honeymoon stage. And the honeymoon stage is the best stage because it's, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. And it's, it's, um, the buyback of I'm going to, I'll buy you this or I'll turn, they turn up with stuff. And so you feel like a princess, you feel special, you feel loved. And until we go around to walking on eggshells again and coming around to the blow up stage again. So what I, what now looking back, what I, I think happened was there was that kind of those moments but it was so awesome in the in the honeymoon and buyback stage. And so when I found out I was pregnant, I kind of thought, oh, okay, that's all right. And and I found out that I, I was pregnant with a boy. Mm-hmm. So that was totally for my plan, a boy first and then a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just I just went on with that and just mm-hmm. just kind of thought it's like life is pretty good. Life is life is good. And was there violence at that stage? Yeah, there had been. Wow. So, but again, like I said, it was, I learned how to cope. Like it wasn't that I was smashed to uh, like, a, like it wasn't like that I was totally smashed up, but there was pushes. There was, you know, maybe a hit to the arm or something like that, or which is, there's no excuses for that. That's not acceptable at mm-hmm. all. Now I know that, mm-hmm. but, but then it was like, you know, oh, it's okay. I can handle this. It's okay. And, um, and so then when I fell pregnant, because I had this ideal in my head that there was going to be the marriage, the child, the children, and the white picket fence, mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, we've just got to get married now. And so, but at the same time, I remembered thinking, I don't know if I want to marry this man. Mm-hmm. So I'll just keep going along with life so then when when i had my son mm. um because all my family were in new zealand i wanted to go back and yeah. and introduce him to my mom and my dad and and that and my sisters had also had sons so like six months apart oh, so wow. we were all in this you know new baby stage and and so i we we both um the kid's dad and myself decided that we would go back for six months to a year and really just get connected with our families. His family was in Auckland in the city. And so mine was in Fakatani in this small town. So we went to Fakatani for, for a bit and stayed with my, my parents. And it was, it was what I thought to be great and great time and really good connecting. But my mum and my kid's dad had a, a falling out. There was, there was, yeah, just over some whatever, some religious stuff actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, there, there was just, there was all little things I think that maybe he was doing that was upsetting her. She knew that things hadn't been great all along with us, but obviously had to accept him because I had accepted him. 
And so there was just always this thing between them. And so he then got to a point where he said, I just can't stay here anymore. I'm going to go back to Auckland to be with my family. And then, you know, maybe you can come back and forward, but I, I'm, I'm out of here. And so he left and went to Auckland and stayed in Auckland and worked in Auckland. Um, but I wanted to stay in Fakhtani as well. So I did, I stayed there for a bit um, and then, but it was in that time when I was there in Fakhtani that I got reconnected with my auntie and uncle mm. who were the pastors of this church. All right. Mm. And you had your little boy at the I time. did. Mm. I did. Okay. And bless them because they weren't, they weren't pressurizing me to coming into church or connecting with God or anything like that. Mm. There was, I remember one comment of, are you in church in Sydney? And I said, no, I'm not. And then then my auntie's just was like, oh, okay. And that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that made me then start thinking, you know, why aren't I in church in Sydney? Okay. Yeah. Because you still believed. Absolutely. Yeah. I did. I did. And these... Two, my auntie and uncle were amazing people in that they were the type of people that would hear of a need in the community if people were in need of some groceries or anything like that or families were struggling. They were the ones that would go and buy hundreds of dollars worth of groceries, put them on their doorstep, knock at the door and run away kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, they were helping so many people just move forward in our communities and so – I remember just watching on, just thinking, wow, they're just amazing. And their life seemed so in order. And and so I remember thinking, gosh, like, our, I don't think our upbringing was like this. I don't think my relationship with my kid's dad was like this. And I started to see the way that they were with each other and, and liked what I saw. Mm. But anyway, long story short, in that trip, they, there was a professional footballer in um, who were close to their family and he was a Christian living in Auckland. He played rugby union for, uh, for New Zealand and he, was, he needed to get away from, from all the busyness of the city and said that he was coming to spend the week with them. And, and so they, he, they wanted to get a bit of a, a sanctuary area in their home for him just to relax. And, and so they were going, they went to another town. Um, they were going to get some rocks and stuff to put around. They built a spa spa pool wow and so they were going to just go and get some rocks out of town from somewhere and and so they were on this journey coming back with the stuff but what happened was they had a trailer on the back of their car and there was an accident and the trailer jackknifed and what in the back of their car they had an lpg tank like a big tank Mm. well when the trailer jackknifed the other car that hit them hit the car their car immediately exploded and the both of them actually were killed in this car accident wow that's awful it was it was unbelievable yeah and so i was at my mum's when the phone call came in that they had both passed away and just i remember thinking what no how like how how did that happen Mm. amazing beautiful people 
doing things for God and and what they've been killed. And so the next few weeks, just with the funeral and everything, the whole town came out to this funeral. Mm. It was a massive funeral. The evangelist that did that funeral for the first time in his life felt that he would do an altar call at their funeral because they were so focused on connecting people to Christ. Mm. He knew that that's what they would have wanted. So the altar call is where he like offer asked people to come to meet Christ. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people would think that's maybe being disrespectful to the family or, you know, but, but we all understood that that's exactly who they were and that's exactly what they would have wanted. And mm-hmm. the altar call on that day at that funeral, it looked to me like the whole town turned out. The whole town went forward. The whole town gave their life. And because of the acts of kindness that they had done. And so I did not go forward, but I sat back and we started to see things of Jesus in their lives, just even preparing for the funeral and everything. We started to see miracles, like the kids had encounters with God and that one of my cousin had seen us, God was on his bed crying like, did they go through pain? And he said he saw this vision of his mum and dad, like it was like as if he was in the back seat of the car, and he saw his mum and dad hold hands, like look at each other, hold hands, and then it was like they were taken out of the car and then the car hit. Wow. I know, right? So he was just like, okay. So they didn't actually even feel that impact. And when the fire brigade actually put the fire and everything out there was their bodies with their hands hand in hand wow i know incredible i know and so all there's all these things that were coming out and i started to watch on just going gosh what is this about and i started to learn that in hardships because I don't often understand why in this situation that they passed away like they did. But in this hard moment, the amount of people that met Christ because of their death was phenomenal. Mm. You know, so a, a terrible situation, which I do know now that God takes the bad stuff and he turns it into good. And so looking at the amount of people that got impacted by their lives and, and that was amazing to see. So I then, there was there was a few family members a couple of days later after the funeral that really wanted to get water baptized. And so I went down to go watch them do that. But when I was there, I felt the tug on my heart to do so myself. And so that was it. That was the changing moment where I gave my life to Christ and I hopped in that water on the same day as everybody else and, and got water baptized. Wow. And it was an amazing day um, for me in that I all of a sudden thought that I had my future in my hands as an I thought I knew where I was going. But when I met with Christ, it was like a whole new blueprint was put on my life. I don't even know how to explain it other than I knew and I knew that he had me in the palm of his hands and the future contained of greatness. And so that's literally the journey. That's that's it. That's how I, I got connected to God, came back to God and came back to Sydney then um, 
with like my kid's dad. He he came back with me and we he did not come into church, but I then went to the phone book because our church is Christian Fellowship, Pakistani Christian Fellowship. And I figured if I look in the phone book for Christian something, I'll mm-hmm. find something. Okay. And I looked in the phone book. At the time, I went back to stay with my dad. In He was in Maroubra. And I thought, well, we'll stay here for a couple of weeks until we find something back on the northern beaches. So in Maroubra, I looked in the phone book and it said Christian City Church, Maroubra. And so I went into this church, Christian City Church, and I met some amazing pastors, Fergus McIntyre, who's now a prophet traveling the world for C3 Church. But he was the pastor of the church and we got talking and and I I said to him how I'm actually moving back to the Northern Beaches, so, you know, can he suggest the church? And he's like, oh, gosh, our mother church – Christian City Church Oxford Balls is on the Northern Beaches. When you get over there, start attending there. So so that was literally my journey. I started then just attending church every week from there on, but the kid's dad wasn't. Mm. And so the violence stopped. After our, our child, the actual violence stopped, but the verbal and emotional abuse kept going. And so I have my son. Oh, and then... The kid's dad does come into church for a little while because now I'm thinking, okay, this is working to what my plan was. He's in church now and he's starting to get his life in order. So we end up getting married. So we get married and then I fall pregnant with my daughter. Now I've got the perfect family, the marriage, the son and the daughter. Mm. And so as then time went on, he stopped coming to church and it was unfortunate that he also had a gambling problem. And so we were really struggling financially because the money was being gambled and we couldn't pay our rent and things like that. And and it was just really, really hard. Um, the abuse was continuing on. It came back and was continuing on the verbal abuse, the emotional abuse. But what I started to see happen was then it went from me, like being directed at me, and it was then directed at my son. Mm. And so I had then fallen pregnant a bit later with my third child and he was two years old and my eldest was eight years old now. So what then happened was my youngest, uh, my eldest, sorry, was always playing rugby league as from three years old he's played rugby league, loves rugby league, kept talking about how he wants to play professional rugby league. Um, and and so, but there was, those were the comments that were being made to him all the time from his father was that you're hopeless, you're not going to make it in life, you're never going to play professional rugby league, no one's going to want you. All this stuff was being spoken into his life. I started to see this little confident boy turn into somebody that was withdrawn and didn't want to speak to adults because of the words that were spoken over his life. I started to see him really withdraw I suppose just even from friends and things like that and he started to believe the things that he was being told and as much as I was trying to teach him to not take that on board and don't listen to that it is unfortunate the good things that you say can be totally drowned out by the bad things that have been said and that's what was happening in this little boy's life but 
what I was doing and I could see myself again at this moment living the life of, I suppose, my mum and dad. We had breakouts, we had arguments and lots of swearing that was happening from, from, from the dad. And there was I, what I was doing when that would start happening is I'd send my kids to the rooms, go to your room, get out of here, go to your room. And I would then try and soften it or um, try and sort it out. But on this one night, he had an argument with my my eight-year-old. And so the eight-year-old, they were arguing, and then I sent him to his room and said, go get out, go to your room. And then as he would, he went, and as I would always do, I'd go in afterwards and sit with him and then try and smooth it over and tell him it's okay and it's not your fault, don't take it on board. But this one night when I went into his room, I walked into his bedroom and I found my eight-year-old on the top of his bunk bed, which had a knob on the corner. I had knobs on the four corners on this one knob and he'd put about round that knob and and put it around his neck and tried to take his life. Oh, my goodness. That's so terrible. I know. I'm so sorry. Look, if I had have been two minutes, maybe four minutes later, I would have lost that child. Wow. Praise God that when I walked in, I walked in when I did. I was able to lift him up. It was very hard at first, and I did call out to his father to come and help me, and he yelled something from the other room that he wants attention and he's not coming or something. So everything in me then was pulled out, and I was able to push his body up and pull him forward, and he came out of that. The bout came off the knob, and he fell to the ground. But he looked up at me with these little eyes because, see, I was taking him to church now on weekends as well, and mm-hmm. he looked up with me at me with these little eyes, and he said, Mommy, I just want to go back to God. Mm-hmm. That, Rachel, was the hardest moment of my life. You know, that here I was, I had a child that didn't want to live anymore, And so I knew and I knew I had to get out. I was six months pregnant with my fourth child. And I, we ended up in hospital because I reported that this had happened and and the hospital, you know, I needed, because he was still coughing a bit. I needed the hospital to check him out. So of course, docs got involved because why would an eight year old want to try and take their lives? Yeah. And so I, made the decision from that point forward that I I was going to get out. And so we went to our um, local woman's refuge. Praise God, actually, that I went to somebody in the church and told them what was happening, and they spoke to a pastor in the church who actually gave me the details of the refuge. And why I say praise God, because I know there are a lot of churches out there that would say, just work it out. You need to stay together. You're pregnant with your fourth child. And they didn't in this case. They directed me straight to the refuge to get some advice. Mm. And when I got there, of course, it was really difficult. Pride kicked in. I I didn't want to go to what I thought a refuge looked like. Mm. I'd seen movies and and thought in my head that it was bunks everywhere and we're all in the same room and you know um really difficult place and uh, but when I got there the church said just go and speak to them and get advice and they may be able to help you or something and so when I got there though they were absolutely like you have to get out you even if there's no violence right now the the emotional and verbal abuse that you're all copying is domestic violence that then 
for me was like, wow, we are living a life of domestic violence. I cannot afford to go back because I cannot afford to lose a child. And as I was six months pregnant with my fourth child, I wanted this child to have a different life. (sighs) And so as you can imagine, it was a hard decision, but it was the right decision. I went into that refuge and absolutely was shocked at how it was not what I thought in my head. It was this amazing place that had, we had our own room, big room. It had its, um, it had TV, its own bathroom. We had a queen bed with a single bed on top and I needed a, a porticot for my two-year-old. It was a massive room, but the backyard was like a kindergarten playground. They had a toy room, the lounge room was massive, and we shared the kitchen with five other families. And so when we went into that place, it actually happened to be quite empty. There was only one other mum there with her one child. So I thought, well, this is actually quite awesome. And I gained favour with the staff there in that I suppose I was the oldest mum. The girl that was in there was, was younger than me. And so I just had favor with the staff my eldest son was given one of the other rooms to make as his own playroom and so i felt like we've we had a place that we could really move forward and out of and so we stayed in that place for six weeks and then they put us into what they call now a transitional property Mm -hmm. and you go into the transitional property for 12 months and in that time you're doing counseling the kids are getting equipped on how to move forward. And if in 12 months time, things have not changed as in finances or you haven't gone back maybe with the ex, because you know, the statistics out there are that women will leave domestic violence situations six times before they leave for the last time. And often the cases these days, we're hearing that one woman is being killed a week because of domestic violence. Those are these statistics in Australia. Mm. And so the fact that I had left and we were out, I didn't know those stats then, Mm. but I was feeling like this is doable. We can do this because we were put in this transitional place, Mm. great home up on Colorado Plateau, and I had my fourth child and was learning how to do life as a single parent. Yeah. And But look, it was in the refuge. I remembered... Because see, I'm coming to church every week now. I'm starting to my my, my I'm starting to change my thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to realize that this kind of behavior in marriages is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. I have a hope and a future in the fact that Christ is now in relationship with me and speaking to me about how it's gonna be okay. How somehow, some way I'm gonna get through. Yeah. And so I remembered one of the nights in the refuge lying on the bunk bed on the bottom and my kids were all asleep and I was just crying into my pillow. And I was crying, God, what, what is it for me? What, what is this my life? Where am I going? What am I doing? Who's ever going to want me with four children now? Like, what is it for me? And a very small voice in my heart came out and said, it is going to be okay. But what I need you to do from this day forward is write down every single thing that you do in order to move forward 
because I will use that to help other women. Wow. I know, right? And I, I was like, okay, here we go. And so as much as the refuge was the place of refuge, it was an amazing place where we, we learned how to move forward. But I also remember thinking there are some holes in the system, holes in the fact that I was in now what I know as crises mentality. I was quite educated, but I could not think how to do all the paperwork that I had to do. I was given a stack of stuff that I needed to do to connect with certain services, but there was so much paperwork that needed filling out. I didn't even know where I could go for such and such support, didn't know what my entitlements were, but I had to find it all out. And so the refuge were there as a place of refuge, a home for us, which was awesome. But what I remember thinking is I wish there was one place that I could just go to and just literally tell them everything. And then they helped me work it out and he even helped me with the paperwork. Well, that's what I have set up today. I have set up that organization, which is SMS Lighthouse, single mum support. Wow. We are a one-stop shop where mums can come in and literally unpackage everything that's going on in their world. And we will sit with them and go through all of that paperwork and help them to connect to the right service and let them know of their entitlements. Great. Yeah. Wow. When was it that you set up SMS Lighthouse? So when I came out of the refuge and was in the transitional place, I was, like I said, taking note of everything that I had to do. Yeah. I, so that was in 2006. So then 2008, so for two years I was taking note of everything, mm. learning how to be mum to my four children alone. And in 2008 I started to find myself just connecting with other women that were thinking of leaving or that were wanting information on how to do stuff. And so I kind of just stepped into it then. It was just simple giving them the knowledge and directing them in the way that they should go. And and it was literally probably from 2008, which is when we started just doing that. And it was meeting mums in parks and playgrounds in cafes in their homes um and and just yeah helping them with whatever it is that they needed to know on how to live life as a single mum great and so it's evolved into quite an organization now it's it's part of a church is that right no no No, it's separate separate from the church yep so i try to get the volunteers Mm. that are working within our organization to have the same values Mm -hmm. because I do believe for me specifically in order for me to move forward Mm. was my connection to Christ. Mm. So, so that's probably the church involvement is there is just handpicking people that are keen to get involved, that want to want to get involved, but are Christians. Mm -hmm. I do have support from C3 Church at Oxford Falls, though, yeah. in that I, when starting up, I, I, well, I still have no money, but we had no money and mm. I needed somewhere to work out of. So they gave me an office space and um, access to all admin things, internet, computer and everything. And I also have now a big storehouse up on the property where I get donated stock from Big W and 
any other donations we get. So I have a storehouse that they actually support me with as well that's free. Wow. That's our connection with mm. the church. Okay. And we get a donation of about $5,000 a year, mm -hmm. which has been a great help in order to help us just with, say, public liability and things yeah. like that. So, And is it your full-time role now at SMS? I do single mom support four days a week. Mm -hmm. And I have another role I've stepped into at the church on a Wednesday, which is the C3 Cares community pastor. Right. So I oversee a service out in the community, feeding people in need and, and just connecting people to, to Christ. But, but four days a week, I'm, I'm in the center on the northern beaches for single mum support because we went from having nowhere as in like just meeting up with with clients out in in the community and i realized that we really needed a place that we could call home so i put in a, an application to our local council and and we got given a a property with office space and a hall and everything like that we pay i pay rent for it but that was a couple of years ago now where we've been, yeah, had the centre now for since about, oh, probably about 2010, I think it was. Great. 2011. But um, it's been, it's been, it's been amazing having a place like that. So mm -hmm. what we actually do now is we, ha I run a support group called Moving Forward, which is on a Monday morning from 10.30 to 12.30. Fortnightly, we have key speakers come into that to teach the mums on how they can actually move forward. Um, things like cooking on a budget, doing the budgets. We have Centrelink housing, court people come out. We do some fun things like art and craft. We have shopping days. We have pamper days. And so this moving forward group, I think, is such a, a great tool in order to bring to mums because when you're going through say separation and divorce or court or anything like that you think at that time you are the only one in that situation you think at that time no one understands what you're going through so our groups i believe are a place where mums can come and talk about what they're walking through and often what happens is someone has already been there before them and so now they feel like actually they do get what we're going through and then every other day, so Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I do one-on-one -on -one case management, which is working with a client one-on-one -on -one as to what they're going through. And it might be that we're going to court, we're going to housing. We are a hand-in-hand -hand support service where we will go actually out with the clients to the support services that they need. If they need us to come to court with them, we'll come to court. If they need us to help them fill out documents, that's exactly what we'll mm. do. So... Yeah. I'm thinking back to your first job in Sydney. Did that help you? Oh, my yeah. goodness, yeah. seriously. When I look back at all of the jobs I did in Sydney, yeah. um, every single one of those jobs is being used in what I'm doing today. Incredible. The court stuff, I understand the legal documents because I did that back then. I went on to then actually because I said I needed a sea change I drove Sydney buses so that was a massive sea change but mm. what's amazing about that now is having that that experience with say buses I now drive trucks as in we go to Big W and we pick up all the stock in a four-ton truck and and so, yeah, I, I'm able to use all of those skills and keys that I learned back in those other jobs in exactly what we're doing today. So, wow. 
you just don't know what it is that you have achieved in, say, a position in the past and that experience that you can use in the future. It's amazing. Wow. Mm. So if people are listening and they'd like to support SMS Lighthouse, financially or in volunteer capacity how can yes. they do that yeah well we have a website which is smslighthouse.org.au and there is a donations page for donations so what's also exciting is christmas just gone we recently got our dgr status which is our tax deductibility right. so anybody that does give a donation above two dollars will actually obtain a tax receipt and you can claim it back at tax time but anyone wanting to volunteer we also have a contact page on our website where you can send through some details and and someone will be in touch but yeah, it's Great. all good. If there is anyone listening who is in a situation of domestic violence and needs that support, how can they reach out to you guys? Yeah. So same kind of deal, but if, if you are in the same situation or maybe maybe you aren't experiencing violence but are ex- experiencing verbal emotional abuse, don't push that down or push that away because it is the same thing in actual fact refuges and counselors will say that trying to get someone through emotional and abusive verbal abusive um abuse is actually harder than trying to help someone move forward from violence so i would say that if you are in a violent situation and it can be life and death then i would be totally getting on to triple zero as soon as possible but if you are in this place and it's been going on for a while and you just don't know how to move forward then you can actually go to 1800 respect which is a phone number of somebody of an organization that really deal with all aspects of domestic violence you can go to their website respect.org.au that's everything on there that you can find out to help you understand domestic violence um google domestic violence and you just watch in your state wherever you are listening what comes up there is so much advice out there there are so many avenues to move forward i would say to any mum that's out there listening to this and if you think you are protecting your children by maybe sending them to the room like i was doing i would say does domestic violence affect children absolutely it does affect children even if you think that they cannot hear it I would suggest that you move quick on trying to work it out or break out because you wouldn't, I would never want for anyone out there to ever have to walk into a bedroom and be too late to find their son and have to bury your child because of domestic violence. Get out now. There is so much support. It is, it's crazy the amount of support that's there. It's possible. Wow, thank you, Josie. That's my really pleasure. Wonderful encouragement for people yep. and advice. So, after going through everything that you have and achieving all that you have as well, you got really sick. I did actually. It was in 2012. And actually, it was literally we had put in our first application for our council building for single mum support. I, it was a Thursday afternoon. But on the Thursday morning in 2012, I got a phone call from the council clarifying that we had won that proposal and we were given this building. So I was in this excited mode of, woohoo, here we go, we're we're going to have a centre. 
By four o'clock that afternoon, the woohoo had gone into a uh-oh kind of a, a tone because I had previously, uh, like a week or so late, uh, previous, I had found a lump on my right breast and I went in and had checked and they had me doing mammograms and biopsies and things like that. And But on this day in the afternoon, I got the phone call that I needed to come back and see them because the lump was confirmed as being cancerous. So here we go now on this cancer journey. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I, I had so much excitement for where I was going, but now fear was starting to creep in about the diagnosis of my health. And so back when I was in the refuge and God gave me the bl- blueprint for single mom support, there was also a moment where in another moment with him, I got this vision of single mom support. I saw a map of Australia and then a map of the world. And I saw single mom support lights popping up everywhere. Wow. And so I got this, I suppose, hope plastered inside of my heart that single mom support was going to go all around the world, that it was a sought after service that was needed. And so when I'm now being diagnosed with breast cancer, that thought came in. Okay, well, this is not going to take me out because God has shown me that single mom support is going to go all around the world. So that was very quickly thought about early on in the diagnosis and the fear was pushed out. So when we went into the doctors and everything and and they gave me the full diagnosis, I would say actually to anybody listening, if you are going through any type of health crises or anything like that, that's quite serious, get on board with you a support person, somebody that obviously you can trust in, but somebody you can um, liaise with because I did that and I took my best friend with me and what that did for me was that because you're in this again I think it's called crises mentality that when you go into the place and you're hearing the doctor give you all these medical terms of your diagnosis I wasn't kind of listening I wasn't kind of comprehending but after it I could say to my girlfriend did he say this or did he say that and so that was a good sounding board to be able to do that together so the the two of us went in to see the doctor and we were trying to finding out what the plan was I had now already done a, a PET scan which is a advanced scan from the top of my head to the tip of my toes they wanted to see where the cancer was and if it was contained which praise god it was it was contained in the one right breast but they actually found seven cancerous lumps and the lumps were moving closer to my armpit because it was in my lymph nodes and it was moving forward to actually like spreading through the through the body so the doctors said because of what they could see they needed to immediately get the breast removed and what they also clarified though was that because the scan had confirmed that there was no cancer anywhere else that once they removed it what they would then do was give me some chemotherapy and the words they used was they would use the chemotherapy to mop up anything that was left behind and 
so they said that it's okay this is a good diagnosis we're, we're good so off we went we went and did that removal the mastectomy after the mastectomy they did another scan and then we went back for those results because they needed to know you know exactly where anything was left if anything was left behind so Nick and I went into the doctors and we sat down and so I'm thinking okay I wonder what chemo's like wonder what you know how long that will take and all that we sit down and then the oncologist has then gone to say your diagnosis has actually changed so what happened was since you we removed the breast the tumors move through your bloodstream and it's now right through your body you've now got two big tumors sitting on your lungs and because they're on your lungs we cannot operate we cannot remove them now what is going to happen is we would probably predict you've got about two years to live so as you can imagine sitting there in this place of okay give us the plan so we can get on with this stuff and get on with and move on to now being told you've got two years to live shut your service write your will and spend time with your kids Mm. get everything in order because this could come on quite quick it's aggressive And so I I just couldn't even speak. Nick, we looked at each other and we're like, are you serious? What is this? What? What's this? What? You know, and, and we, I remember getting in the, she picked me up from the center and we hopped in the car to drive back and the two of us couldn't even talk. We, we didn't even know how to talk. We didn't even know what to say to each other. And I got out and said, I would speak to her caller later and, and so she's told me even since that she drove off, just like, what the heck? Yeah. I knew and I knew, though, that I had to get myself away with God. I could not take that all, all on board and think that I could do that by myself. So Nick and I went to a farm stay place a few hours out of Sydney, and we rented this property for the weekend. And it was a beautiful place. I remember then going up to the mountain, um, there was a field and we, I went up the top there one day and I just said to her, or well, both of us actually, we're just going to get our own revelation from God as to what where we were going and what the go was. Well, I went up to that that the top of the hill and, and I took up a pad and a pen and, and I was really going up to see God. And I remember now just sitting down on the grass and just crying. I didn't know what words to say except God, Jesus, and just fully crying. And and then I was started to read the word and I was getting some scriptures and and I asked God, what's the go? Like, really? Is this going to take me out? And it was like at that moment. It was it's it was hard to hard to even explain, but it was like a a screen was pulled down in front of me, like a, a a movie screen, and all of a sudden I saw it was like I was watching this movie, and what I saw I saw a church inside the church, and there was the pews like the the seats and stuff. I was sitting on the front seat, and I turned around, so I'm watching this this movie. And I see myself turn around to look back. And as I've looked back, 
coming down the aisle with flowers is my 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 youngest child in her wedding dress. Oh. And I felt the Lord say, you will be at her wedding. Wow. And so at that time, my daughter was six years old when I seen this vision. And so that was the thing that I had to hook my faith into. I knew and I knew that I would be at her wedding. And so I then fed myself with any healing scripture that I could find. I watched any type of YouTube's healing testimonies and things like that. I really got fed on faith and I built the faith muscle around believing God for a miracle. In doing this, what it actually did was made me, I suppose, totally just focus on what was in front of me. I started to learn that my journey of faith was praying, so asking God for the thing, then believing you've got the thing, and then proclaiming the thing like as if you've already got it. That was kind of a strategy that I felt like the Holy Spirit had given me. And so I had gone from asking him because that's what I did on the hill. Lord, I ask you to please heal me. I ask you to help me with my kids to understand this. And then it was, I thank you, God, that I'm healed. I praise you that it is done. And so from that day forward, it was a continual thank you, Jesus, that I am healed, that I do not have cancer. He gave Nick actually a scripture. I was about to start chemotherapy. So they said to me after the removal, we will give you very heavy high doses of chemotherapy for 12 weeks. And But what that's going to do is it's not going to kill the cancer it will just keep the cancer at bay. It'll maybe slow it down from growing so you could end up with a couple more months longer. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this because I had people, and this is what happens when you're going through something like this journey, I had people that were so into the network marketing products that are supposed to cure cancer or help you with cancer and all that. I had them coming at me left, right and center, get on this product, do this and eat this. Then I had the real religious ones. Don't do chemo. Don't do that. Just trust God. Just totally, you know, believe that he's going to do it. And then I had the doctors got to do the chemo, got to do this, got to do that. Their advice screaming. So I had all these angles of telling me what to do and so in my prayer time I I'm I'm a bit of a write it down kind of a thing I'm a bit of big on brain dumping so getting everything out of my head and putting it on paper and I remembered looking at this paper just going okay so I've got these ones saying eat like that I've got these ones saying just trust God don't do anything and I got the doctors saying you know got to do the chemo so I, I had that all out of my head and on the paper and I remembered thinking Okay, what are we going to do, God? Where and and I've learned that when I'm asking God for direction, I lean towards where my peace is. Where am I finding peace? I looked at the doctors. Do I find peace about going down the road of the doctors? I actually did find peace about it because I thought, you know what, they are actually qualified in what they do. They don't actually have all the answers, but here we go. We have in this angle, we have God that's got the answers. I totally knew and I knew that that God had the final say, but I felt peace about doing the chemotherapy. I knew and I knew that I was going to totally trust what God was telling me and do what he wanted me to do, but I was I was also going to 
start looking at what these people were saying about the way that what I put in my mouth and so I didn't but what I made a decision on was that I did not want to start buying specific products because I believed at the end of the journey that I was going to have a healing testimony and not once did I want that glory to go to a network marketer and their product I wanted that glory of my story to go to Jesus Christ being my healer. So I refused to take on board or try any network marketing products, no matter how great people were saying they were. And I switched the intake of what I ate to natural foods that I could buy at the supermarket. So I started juicing and doing everything like that because I kind of figured, you know what, if I'm just doing the whole package, at the end of the day, it's got to be good for me anyway. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. We did the 12 weeks of chemo and I started to believe God that I would not get affected by any side effects. And there was another lady that was on the same journey as me, not in church, not a Christian, but her and I became good friends because she was on those chemo chairs every week. And But what I started to see was that the chemotherapy was really smashing her around. She was struggling in that she was vomiting all the time. She couldn't walk some days. Her her sleeping couldn't sleep. And so I, I, I felt like my choice to connect with God to help me through this for me was a good choice because actually I didn't get one side effect other than I did lose my hair and I'm really big now on understanding that when you go through a tough time and you do overcome it that tough journey is the actual key that helps you to help someone else move forward because you have already overcome it, because you have walked it and you understand it. So when I lost my hair, I remember thinking, do you know what? I need to lose my hair because I need to understand what it would be like for somebody else down the track that's going through it. I also felt the same about the chemotherapy. If I'm going to come alongside somebody and help them move through a cancer journey, I want to totally say to them, I've done chemotherapy. I understand what it feels like. I know what it was like to be, you know, sitting there for two and a half hours every Thursday. So I started to look at it like, you know what, this is, these are going to be tools that I will be able to have to say that I've been there. And so, but the thing is every single week, the doctors were still telling me that the tumors aren't reducing, the tumors are still growing, they're, they're still, still moving quite aggressively. And so when you get told that by medical professions, our normal thinking is to go into fear, mm. but I kept searching out my peace. Where is the peace in this? Where, and, and I would remember, oh, the vision. I am going to see my daughter get married. And not only that vision, but I had the single mom support vision of it going all around the world. I also then had a scripture, one of the scriptures that I had, Nick actually got a scripture just before chemo, which was in, in Mark 3.10. And that was that you will drink deadly poison and it will not harm you. And so that's what I was proclaiming every Thursday when I was going in for chemo. I'm going to drink this deadly poison and it's not going to harm me. And that's exactly what happened. I did not get like I said any of those sicknesses or anything that all the others were getting so the journey of chemo and it's a crazy thing because I sit now just going it was an amazing journey because what it also did for me is it made me stop for two and a half hours to just really be 
whereas I was a bit of a runner and so busy with my work and my kids. And so it gave me thinking time and time just to hang and settle. And and so I actually loved those sessions, as crazy as that sounds now. But I so all the way, just totally believing, proclaiming, trusting God that it's going to be okay. And so in April of 2013, we had our local, our, our church's annual presence conference. And in this service, I remembered beforehand saying, God, I'm coming for a miracle. I, I, I want that miracle this week. And I don't think we can actually put times on miracles at all. So I suppose I need to say that it's always in God's timing. We don't know when or how, and it's just we need to keep until. And so, but I was hungry for the miracle. And so we had, there was a moment of a miracle offering we do in these conferences. And I went and I put a offering towards a miracle. But when I did that, there was something different in that I felt like God had given me a guarantee slip. Like when you'd bought a product up at the store, if it breaks down, you've got the guarantee, it's, it will be replaced. Yeah. I felt like there was a guarantee that was put on me that it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So I remembered going back to my seat and just with my hands lifted, just was praising God that I was totally going to live and I was not going to die. And did I know the moment that I got healed? No, I still don't know, but I believe that that had a lot to do with it. Can you buy a miracle? No, I don't think you can buy a miracle at all. You can sow towards a miracle and trust God for a miracle. I think what the giving of finances and sowing is actually an act to help you build your faith. It is actually not so much in the giving. It is more in the once you've done it, it helps you believe, um, build your faith to believe that it's going to be okay. And so it's just an action, I think, of of a way to really just get us connected to totally trusting even more so. And so a week later, I was due, my chemotherapy, had, my chemotherapy finished, the last session was on the Wednesday morning, Thursday morning of our women's conference, of, <laughs> of the presence conference so I went in and did that final chemotherapy session and then went straight into the city to the conference which was then that miracle offering morning Mm -hmm. and so it was like oh my gosh I'm done 12 weeks of chemotherapy amazing and then it was a couple of weeks later they did a scan they did a scan a week later and everything was still exactly as it was um tumors still on the lung and still the same size a fortnight after that they then decided they were going to do a pet scan from the top of my head to the tip of my toes because they wanted to decide now if they were going to do some radiation that might also help with prolonging life a little bit yeah so we went in and did that but they did that pet scan a couple of times it felt like and it took forever but I remember thinking, oh, it's probably just procedure. They probably just need to be extra thorough. And they didn't tell me any of the results straight away. I then went back to my oncologist who then told me that he didn't understand how or why, 
but all of a sudden now they cannot find one bit of cancer. Wow. (laughs) I know, right? So was that a day to celebrate? (laughs) Absolutely, it so was. It was an emotional day of here we go, it's done. So it's now like they, because they still don't get it, they still are afraid that they actually said, we don't, it, it must be hiding somewhere. It, you know, it's like, well, hang on, how does cancer hide? You've just done, you know, advanced scans. They, they just could not understand it because one minute I'm riddled with cancer and next thing they cannot find one bit of cancer. They did tumor markers, which is injections that you do to just through your blood, look at what the actual, um, the, mapping and stuff of the tumors are like so the markers i think give them a reading as to what the movements are and and the markers were all at normal levels and so then he went on to say well you're in remission so we need you because your cancer was estrogen fed we need to induce early menopause by giving you hormone injections every four weeks But what that will also allow us to do is when you come back every four weeks, we can do tumor markers again just before you come so we can check up what's going on with those tumors. We don't understand it. (laughs) I understood it. I understood that I had received a miracle from heaven. And that miracle is a miracle that we are all entitled to be grasping a hold of. Jesus is no respecter of persons. I'm nobody special. He, I, I believe that I just believed and he came through. I also do believe the key to miracles are absolutely believing 100% until. And I do understand, though, that the journey specifically of health, when you are seeing the symptoms in your face and you're being told by the doctors that it is still there, it's still aggressive, it's still going to take you out, our natural way of thinking is going into fear And sometimes it's hard to trust when you can't see a God to trust. But I praise God that along the way that my faith muscle was built and I was able to sustain and totally believe until the end. So I am very excited about the future. I am obviously, my kids are excited at the fact that they have seen God's hand move. I was honest with them the whole way in the fact that I told them that the doctors weren't happy with what was going on with my health. I did not specifically say, though, that I had two years to live, that I did not tell them that, but I said that the doctors are not happy with what they are seeing. They are trying to do everything they can do, but we're going to trust God. And I'm I'm big on also writing up things all over the walls and on pieces of paper, scriptures, and I did that, and so my kids and my, and myself were proclaiming scriptures all the way through. I went as far as because I really wanted to witness to even my nurses. I one of my life scriptures are the Philippians three uh, four thirteen, which is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I went so far as even getting that tattooed on my left arm 
on the inside of my arm because that was the arm that they had to put my chemotherapy in so that every time a nurse came and put that drip in, she would always ask, oh, what does that say? And I was able to say that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it was a doorway into speaking about the goodness of God. So, yeah. Wow, incredible. I know. <laughs> and I'd, I'd like to ask you to share briefly with us now, like what, what is that goodness of God? What is the core of what you believe? Mm. I believe that, that he is a God of love, that he really does love us. And I also love the fact that, you know, we hear it all the time that he's a God that gives us choices, that he's not going to force himself upon us that we have the choice to connect with him or the choice to not. I know for my life when I look at the past and I look at the times when I was not connected to him, that my life was a mess. But since being connected to him, the source, the power of heaven and earth, connection with Jesus, his son, and in relationship with the Holy Spirit who Jesus left here on the earth for us to hang out with, my life has never been the same. I love that I can I can connect my kids to Jesus and that they can have their own relationship with him. I love when I see that I can actually have the opportunity to maybe pray for some clients that are really doing it tough. And this is the thing with my organization as well, being an authentic organization that we have prayer at the core of everything we do. I've seen clients that need prayer and want prayer, get prayer, and then see miracles happen in their lives. Now, we don't force religion or Christianity upon any clients. I have Muslim clients who are in burqas coming in to see me, but I will do everything that I can to help them move forward. And I do, though, offer and say that I do believe that Jesus is a God of miracles. If they would like me to pray, then I'm happy to do so, but they don't have to. And a lot of them do want prayer. But if they don't, I'm okay with that, and I will not treat anybody differently. But the core of my belief, my my future, is the love of God is real. And it is there, he is there for anybody that, really just needs him he needs you as much as we need him so i will go and i will proclaim from the rooftops that jesus christ is a healer he's the same today yesterday and forever and so i find myself now being even invited to places to speak and i have to pinch myself as to how i got here And I know and I know that I could not get where I am today. And even with the awards of my service and and that we have received from the government today, I could not have done any of it without Christ. So we can do what we need to do if we focus on where we need to go. We're all got it in us. It's just what we do with our lives while we're here. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.